Welcome back to another episode of Independent Thought. My name is Desmond Price. For today's episode, I am joined by Kay Fellows. Kay, thank you for coming on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, with the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, I've been wanting to have this conversation with several people. You're just the first person I'm having on to have this conversation with, but there's a few different different avenues I want to go through with this particular conversation. Now, as this is a more left-leaning podcast, we don't have as many conversations that are geared towards something that might be channeled in a right-wing space. So I want to talk to you today about your organization first off. You're the co-founder of Protecting Life Through Ethical uh, Accountability, is that correct? Yes. Can you just tell me what that organization does and why you decided to be the co-founder of this? Um, well, we really got our start just kind of, it was through a situation that we were seeing unfolding in pro-life activism, and it was really just me and another person that's also active in the pro-life movement seeing this happening and seeing that there was, there was a hole that needed to be filled in the pro-life movement, and it was a hole that had been completely ignored and totally neglected for a very, very long time, and it had become a very, very serious problem, and that was that holding yourself to a high ethical standard. You know, pro-lifers do claim to have the moral high ground whenever it comes to just life in general because they don't support abortion. And if you're going to be a person that holds themselves to a higher moral standard, then you need to be living out being that higher moral standard. And we were seeing that the exact opposite was happening in the pro-life movement. We were seeing very, very unethical things happening and there was zero accountability for it depending on how big of a name the person engaging in that unethical behavior was. And so we really got started with just wanting to fill that hole. Um, and then as we progressed, we've been active since November of last year, we've noticed that there are other holes that need to be filled. And the reality is, is that pro-life activism doesn't take it far enough. We wanted to see more. We wanted to see actually living out a pro-life for the entire life, respect and dignity for all human beings and having a high quality of life throughout the entirety of their life. It's not just about having humans being born, it's about making sure that they have a high quality of life throughout it and aren't victims of violence, aren't victims of discrimination. And so we, you know, we're really, really hoping to get the ball rolling as we grow and filling those needs, mostly you know, on a national scale, but mostly focus focusing on our local communities and being involved in our local communities and filling that need. Yeah. So this is, this is something that, you know, is always like a critique that I hear from the left when it comes to people talking about pro-life, you know, that it always seems like the critique is you're not really pro-life, you're pro-birth, you know, like once the child is born, it's kind of just like, well, we're going to cut all these different social safety net programs. We're going to, you know, just kind of basically just leave you out on your own. Childhood poverty is a massive issue. We saw that Republicans vote against the child tax credit, you know, on and on the list is something that people are very familiar with, but you specifically seem to be very uncomfortable with that, which is why you say you're no longer pro-life. What is the goal of your organization? Like, what is it that you hope to achieve? Like, what are the long-term plans of it? The long-term plans really are to overtake pro-life activism as a whole. 
pro-life activism doesn't do what it is supposed to do. What do they even claim that it does? And even if it did do what they claim that it does do, it's still not enough. You're still not doing enough to create this culture of life that you talk so much about, but there's a lot of talk and there's very, very little action on that. And we want to see ethical life activism being pro-life for the whole life overtake what is now pro-life activism. Pro-life activism has become incredibly politicized. It's a hot topic that comes up during campaign season that politicians use to farm votes. And so we want to see the politicization of human life being destroyed and people being victimized pulled away from politics completely. We want to promote being involved in your community, in your backyard, and we want to promote actually wanting to see people thrive. It's not just about stopping women from having abortions and making sure that that baby isn't killed in an abortion. It's about making sure that whenever that child is born, that they have food, clothes, that they're being cared for, that they're not being harmed or victimized by the system or by neglect or by abuse. We want to see women and pregnant people being given access to quality health care, that are being given access to, you know, quality diapers, formula, maternity clothes, whatever they need throughout life. We want a new pro-life movement that promotes these ideals and isn't just talking about it. They're out there actively doing it. We have very, very limited resources. And in, in the pro-life movement, you have one or two organizations solely dedicated to making sure that families and women and pregnant people are having access to basic needs. And all of that is falling on one or two organizations while all of the pro-life activists are off doing their own thing. And we want to see a complete shift in how we talk about the abortion issue because abortion isn't just a singular issue. It is a compound, it is compounding of multiple issues in our society that need to be addressed in order to see abortion rates come down. So when we talk about this, you know, this is obviously something, you know, if you're someone who's pro-choice, you probably don't even want to hear anything about pro-life. But I, I think when when you're coming to this conversation, you're talking from a sense of like, well, if you really do care about the life, then you have to care about the entire life, which I think, you know, it, it's it's a very moral standard to have when you're when you're on this particular side of the coin, when you're in the pro-life camp, you know, it's like, hey, you know, we can't just stop advocating for people once they're born, which is the current like standard of people who say that they're pro-life. Now for you, you said that you came up pro-life and then that changed for you over time. So what was that moment? Like, like what was it that kind of like led you to kind of switch where you were at to where you're at now? And was it a gradual thing or was it just like a, just one thing in particular? Well, if you ask all of the pro-life people that don't like me anymore, they'll say that it was a very, very dramatic sudden shift. But for me, it was a lot of years of examining and re-examining what I believed and why I believed it. My political journey and my journey through my religious beliefs and my journey through my pro-life beliefs all kind of took place simultaneously. I've been doing activism for eight years since 2014. And whenever I started, I was a I was a conservative Republican Christian. And you know, people would never believe that, you know, I used to be uh, I I'm pro-life turned ethical life activist. I'm a conservative turned to raging leftist. I'm a Christian turned into a pagan witch. And all throughout all of that, 
it was actually my pro-life beliefs that drove me away from conservatism, drove me away from the Republican Party, drove me away from Christianity. And it was because of pro-life people that talked a really, really big game about caring so much about these children and about these women. But whenever push came to shove, there was so much hypocrisy. And it was seeing unethical behavior going unchecked and unchallenged, zero accountability. They did not care that their pro-life leaders and their pro-life speakers and the people that they were promoting on their, on their channels and on their podcasts were engaged in objectively horrible things behind the scenes. And I, I moved from group to group to group, and it was just one thing after another. I would, I would bend my morals until something eventually broke, and I was like, I don't fit here anymore. And as I made those shifts from groups, I also made shifts in my political affiliation. And eventually I landed in, well, I really don't agree with leftists on abortion, but I do agree with them on their stance that we need to be doing more for human beings. Human beings need access to healthcare. People shouldn't be starving. People shouldn't be houseless. You know, these are things that leftists are really, really great about pushing. And I just, for me, with where I stand morally, I, I include abortion in my issues of let's create a society that truly values humanity and human beings and puts human beings first. And for me, it was a very, very long, very, very strenuous, emotional roller coaster of a ride from where I was in 2014 to where I am now. Were people that you knew in your life accepting of that transition? Like, did, did people say, like, I don't agree with you, but I get it? Or was it kind of like a, a clean break? Like, well, now that you're not saying the same things that we used to say, like, now you're against us. I mean, are you able to maintain relationships with people that you once had that were pro-life? So far, no. Um, as I left groups, it was it was rough and dramatic and not at all clean breaks. Um, whenever I finally, you know, I was a very much an up and coming pro-life activist. I was working for an organization that was underneath a much larger organization. And I, I had a lot of things going for me. I, I was ready to make my splash as a pro-life activist in the pro-life movement. Um, and I got to a point where I was hearing things and I was seeing things and I started to push back. And once I started to push back, um, I got that brick wall, like, you can't do this here. We need you to, we need you to stop. We need you to be quiet. Um, nod your head and just agree. You don't have to like everybody, but you do have to pretend that you like them. And I got to a point where I was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. And that was the start of my fall from grace and pro-life activism. I was blacklisted by what you would consider the mainstream pro-life movement. Um, organizations were told not to work with me and individuals were told that if they did work with me that they were going to join me on that blacklist and that these larger organizations and these larger leaders in pro-life activism were not going to work with them if they associated with me. And that was kind of the start into me realizing that there was a corruption issue in pro-life activism. And I was ignorant enough to believe that if that as I moved into the more fringe progressive non-religious sector for life activism that I would have a safe space to have my opinions and share my opinions openly. Um, I was disappointed with that too. And I had a very, very emotional, very, very not clean break from even progressive leftist pro-life activists for not being okay with things that they were doing and things that they were saying. 
So thus far, I have not been able to do that. I think that I have finally found a group of people with my organization that truly do value having a difference of opinion and knowing that we can work together even with our differences and that having that difference of opinion kind of makes us stronger. My co-founder is uh, a conservative. She is the polar opposite of me, but we work very, very well together and her support of her beliefs and my support of my beliefs has allowed us to really, really build a solid foundation of understanding where everybody's concerns are. You know what? It's it's interesting to see this because I think sometimes when we're listening to the media, we always are told that you know it's just a, it's just a clean break. You know, that you're either you're pro-choice or you're or you're pro-life, and the the grays, all the in-betweens, are things that we never really hear about. So I've been really fascinated hearing about your story. Uh, when I first came across it, you know, I think on crowdsource politics, I think I saw your interview with him. And, you know, one of the things that I, I definitely want to talk to you about further is the common thing that's always asked from anybody who's pro-choice about someone who is pro-life, which is where do you fall on, you know, life of the mother, uh, rape, incest, things of that nature, because those are the, the things that people just consider to be on the outside, just like, like, what, what are your thoughts on this? So we're going to get to that here in a minute, but first we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will have that particular question and thoughts on the mess of the adoption and the foster care system here in this country. So we'll be right back after this. Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode. Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage-inspired clothing, shoes, and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf, and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at bettysdivine.com. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. So before the break, I had mentioned that we wanted to talk about you know, kind of the the common question that's asked from people who are pro-choice, people who are pro-life, you know, like what about exceptions for, you know, rape, incest, life of the mother, just as, as a curiosity, because I have a mostly like left-leaning audience. Where do you fall on these issues, just given where you're at politically on 
the topic of abortion? Yeah, this is something that I struggled with for a really long time. Um, part of it was just a lack of education and understanding. Um, I did take a lot of years to, you know, study study pregnancy and study childbirth and study all of these different issues and com complications and having had two children of my own and going through a high-risk pregnancy, I do understand the importance of having exceptions, especially in the very, very numerous life-threatening situations that pregnant people can find themselves in during pregnancy. Pregnancy is an incredibly complex thing, and it's unlike anything else that we know on Earth. It's a entirely unique relationship between two human beings, and it's a, it's a relationship that can go south incredibly fast. And one of the things that I will say about the pro-life laws that I see coming out is that we do have all of these, you know, exceptions for life of the mother, but I don't think that they do their due diligence in making sure that these are outlined as clearly as possible so doctors do not feel like there is a gun to the back of their head whenever administering life-saving care for women. Um, this is an incredibly important thing, and I have talked about it on my social media about how important it is whenever writing these, writing these bills that are going to become law in entire states that politicians understand what it is they're talking about. And they've made it incredibly clear that they don't. Um, and it's it's a very, very frustrating thing because you want to, I want to fight back against misinformation that goes around online that is objectively untrue and is just meant to scare people while also giving credit to the argument that these bills are not written well enough to make sure that women and people that can get pregnant are not put in situations that are incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Um, so I will absolutely, you know, I will bite the bullet on that as, as somebody who is anti-abortion that these bills, while I think that a lot of them are written fairly well, and they've done a really, really good job of making sure to highlight things like miscarriage, aftercare, and ectopic pregnancies. The idea of life-saving medical care for the life of the mother is too general, it's too broad, and we need to do more to make sure that these laws are understandable for all medical staff. Like, this is okay for you to do. You're not going to lose your medical license. You're not going to be sued. You're not going to go to jail if you provide this care. And we need to make sure that those parameters are clearly laid out for, for medical staff because we are already seeing a blowback from these bills not being clear enough and doctors not having a full understanding of what it is they are and are not allowed to do. You know, kind of along those lines, when it comes to talking about bills, you know, I saw just within the last week, you know, they were the Democrats in the House had put forth a, a piece of legislation about protecting the right to contraceptives, you know, IUDs, birth controls, just of, of all sorts. Um, all but 10 Republicans voted against it in the House. I legitimately couldn't wrap my head around that because uh, in my mind, if you are truly trying to prevent abortions, doesn't doesn't that kind of like strike you as a place that you want to, you know, be in favor of contraception? But, you know, let me just just take away my my opinions about this for for a hot second, because I have plenty of them on this podcast. What are your thoughts on that uh, particular uh, just the outcome there that what was it over 200 Republicans voted against this measure? Like, how do you feel about that? You know, for me, it's one of those moments where I had a lot of conflicting emotions because part of me just wanted to scream. Um, but I live in the city and my neighbors can probably call the cops. Um, but I also got a level of satisfaction from it because as somebody who is anti-abortion, but also a leftist, I get so much crap 
from other pro-life people about how I vote. They're always so interested come election, the election cycle, you know, what, how do you vote? Who did you vote for? And I don't, I'm not very forthcoming with that information because first of all, it's none of their business, but I know why they're fishing for that. And they want to know if I've, I voted, I cast my vote for a pro-abortion candidate. And I've talked about how I have not, I do not vote for Republicans and people get really, really mad about that. And for me, I have been telling the pro-life movement and screaming at pro-lifers that Republicans are only pro-life to the point where they get your vote. They do not care about ending abortion. They actually do not benefit in any way from ending abortion because it's one of their key campaign issues. And I do not vote for Republicans that do absolutely nothing to help the pro-life cause. And so for me, it was kind of a, a moment of, I mean, selfish satisfaction because it was horrible that it happened. But I was like, this is, this is the reality. This is what is happening. This is what I told you was going to happen. Once Roe v. Wade was overturned, these Republican, you know, lifelong people that have been serving in the government that have been, you know, masked on about these issues for so long that they no longer have to be quiet about how they feel about it. They've gone completely masked off and a lot of their followers and their supporters that have blindly followed behind them did mask off too. I had been telling people that this is exactly what was going to happen and this is why I don't vote for Republicans. So, I mean, for me, it was like, this is a horrible thing that's happening. And as, you know, as satisfying as it is to be able to say, I told you so, you know, here we are in a post-Roe America and Personally, for me, I'm a little freaked out. I'm a little scared about what we're going to see coming out of these super, super conservative red states because they no longer have that gag on them. What they were trying to accomplish has been accomplished. Roe is overturned and they now have the power to do whatever they want in their states. And to me, that's actually a little bit scary. Yeah, I think it's scary for a lot of people and it's going to send a lot more children into adoption care, into the foster care system, systems that, you know, I mean, I personally have some experience with it. These are, for the most part, I mean, they're terribly mismanaged, they're underfunded. You know, I think the people who are working inside of these systems, I mean, some of them are, I mean, I think most of them are really great people, but you do have some people who are involved in them who we have seen levels of abuse for certain children out there. There's also a huge link between the foster care system and human trafficking. So it's just, it seems just overwhelmingly how bad, like, you know, this, these systems currently are operating for you. Like, what are your thoughts on the current systems of adoption care, foster care? And is your organization, I guess, interested in intervening in some way, shape or form, like going forward? You know, my organization, we're still very much in like the get established stage. And there's only, there's only four of us. It's four, you know, young women. I am the oldest of my team and I'm only 27. You know, we're, so we have absolutely no funding. We have zero support. We have no movement to back us. You know, we are the first ethical life activists and PLEA is the first ethical life activist organization to ever exist. We have, we have coined this idea. And so we're, we're starting from complete scratch, but we did go, you know, over like, what is it, what are the core issues that we want to talk about and adoption and foster care within the top three, because this is an absolutely heinous thing that we are seeing and happening. And we talk a lot about it in American society about, you know, we need to fix the foster care system. You know, the adoption system is too expensive, but literally nobody is doing anything to fix these systems. 
the pro-life movement likes to pretend like they are, but we're not. It's just a conversation piece. And I've, I've worked alongside of very, very briefly organizations that specifically, you know, they target, you know, predatory behavior towards children online. They, they target, you know, child sex trafficking rings. Um, uh, Vets for Child Rescue, I have had conversations with them in the past about what do we need to do about the fact that, you know, of the, I think it's 80,000 children that go missing annually, half of them were in the care of the state whenever they went missing. That is just, I couldn't even wrap my mind around that statistic whenever I I read it. Like, we're losing roughly 40,000 children a year while they're in our state's care. How is, how is this happening? Why is this happening? And I was able to get some incredible insights from people that are on the ground dealing with this issue. And it's kind of funny because with the foster care system, it's entirely government run and there's no transparency there. And that's why we see the levels of abuse. We see children slipping through the system, phasing out and becoming homeless or runaways or you know, being victims of sex trafficking. And because there's no community involvement there. And with the adoption system, we're seeing the exact opposite. These are private organizations that are profiting off of and exploiting children that need to be homes, that need to be sent to loving homes and and families that are in very, very desperate situations where they, they desperately want to have a child and care for a child and give a child a loving home, but they can't afford it. And they're being exploited in that incredibly vulnerable, hard, emotional situation. And so, you know, I was talking with people that, you know, deal with the foster care system and have seen the the abuse that happens in the adoption system. It's kind of like, we need to meet in the middle. There needs to be more government regulation on the adoption system so that middle America can afford to adopt. You have so many families that are, you know, median household income, they can absolutely afford to care for a child and give them a loving home, but they cannot afford to go through the process of adopting that child to make that child a member of their family. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. And so we need more government involvement in the adoption system to lower costs, to make sure that children are not being, you know, used for profit, to make sure that families aren't being exploited. And we need the exact opposite from the foster care system. We need more community involvement, more nonprofit organizations monitoring this to make sure that what is happening in the foster care system and all those horrible things don't happen. Yeah, and it, it's 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 heartbreaking, honestly. When I really when I think about this, when I hear about this, there are so many people who are displaced in these systems who are being taken advantage in these systems. Um, I've had family members, you know, be involved in these systems. It's, it's unimaginable. Some, some of the things that these people go through, like growing up, you know, like in this environment. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this and also for coming on the podcast and having this discussion with me. Um, this is something that I normally, you know, like would not, or like have not had on my podcast. So I do appreciate having a different perspective, come on here and kind of talk with us. When it comes to what you're doing next, uh, what is like some of the next steps for for play, um, and what is like a project that you're working on right now? Well, right now, as much as we have all of these other things that we want to tackle, we want to talk about foster care. We want to talk about adoption. Where we're really all four of our team members are really really big on addressing the houseless community and how you know how just neglected they are. 
And we have all of these things that we want to do, but right now we're in the middle of a very, very intense situation regarding Abby Johnson, who is a very, very well-known pro-life activist. She's known internationally. She's got a movie. She's got several books. Um, and she is actually what caused us to launch Flea in the first place, because back in November of 2021, she posted a very, very long Facebook post to her public Facebook page, followed by hundreds of thousands of people um, making incredibly heinous accusations towards another pro-life activist known as Jennifer Christie, um, who was only pro-life activist because of her story of conceiving her youngest son um, in rape. Um, she was gone, went through a brutal attack back in 2014 and conceived her son. And was sharing that story and she had started a nonprofit called Love Louder so that she could be, you know, a, a light to other people that were in this situation like her and she could be a support system to them. And um, unfortunately, Love Louder no longer exists. She had to shudder that she can no longer give that safe space to women in her situation. Um, and it is because of these public accusations that Abby made that she lied about her rape. Um, that she was using her nonprofit to funnel funds and commit fraud and have, you know, co cosmetic surgeries and all of these things, all these completely baseless accusations that Abby Johnson made against this woman, attacking her family. Um, it's, it was a, it's a horrible situation. It's honestly horrible. And whenever these accusations were made public, despite her having absolutely no evidence to support anything that she was saying, Jennifer Christie was completely dropped and shunned by the pro-life movement. They pulled all of her content. They stopped supporting her, her organization. That's why it had to be shuttered. Um, it, didn't, it didn't matter that she provided uh, screenshots and videos of her medical records proving that she was raped. It didn't matter that she had her doctor willing to testify for her. It didn't matter that she was willing to get a copy of her police report. None of this mattered to any of them because Abby Johnson is such a big figure Nobody wanted to go against her in defense of this woman that they essentially saw as a nobody because she didn't have a big enough following for them to care. And we've been dealing with this situation for almost nine months. Um, it's been a really, really big uphill battle because nobody wants to talk to us. Nobody wants to hear what we have to say. And if the people that have been willing to hear what we have to say, they're not willing to do anything to help us. Um, but we are very, very dedicated to making sure that Jennifer and her family first and foremost, before we do anything, receive some sort of justice for what was done to them. I mean, this poor woman had to be put on suicide watch for a week because her mental health was just so, it took such a beating from the online harassment and people calling her home and calling her older children and calling her doctors. Um, yeah. It was just, it was brutal. And so we are very, very dedicated right now to making sure that this family receives some sort of justice for what what was done to them, but more importantly, what the pro-life movement as a whole allowed to happen to them. Well, I appreciate the work that you're doing. Uh, thank you for taking the time for coming on the show today. And where, where can people find out more about you and kind of keep up with what you're doing online? Um, I go by K Fellows with a Z. It's just my name, but with a Z instead of an S on all social media platforms. My organization is Plea Justice on all social media platforms. Um, I'm very, very active through my organization. I'm very, very active, probably too active on Twitter. Um, that's where I post the most. <laughs> if people want to keep up with what I'm doing, you'll probably find me over there. 
All right, everyone, we'll have some links in the episode description. So go ahead and click in there now and you'll be able to see where you can follow along. Uh, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast today. Mm -hmm.